congregations this past week on our wonderful communion service last Sunday. I share, it was sure a blessing to me to commune with you and the Lord Jesus Christ and to wash the saints' feet. And then this morning we were blessed to observe the other ordinance of the Lord's church, that is, in baptism. And appreciated what Brother Don said to us in the beginning. That is the greatest testimony a believer will ever have. The eunuch asked Philip, says, here's water, what doth hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said, thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. As they were finishing up of there, Brother Tony shared with me something Brother Don said. Uh, he told Brother Don, he said, it all went well and you made it look easy. And he said, well, I thought about how difficult it probably was going to be before I left home this morning. But then I thought, well, that's, that's just nothing compared to what the Lord did for me in carrying his cross up the hill of the Calvary. I thought that was a wonderful, wonderful expression. Uh, I'd like to speak to you this morning from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. From time to time, you may hear me say in the pulpit something about the legal phase or the legal aspects of our salvation. And you may hear me say something about the vital phase of our salvation. And you may hear me say something about the experiential aspects of our salvation. Well, this morning I want us to take a look at those three different phases or aspect of salvation. The legal aspect, the vital aspect, and the experiential aspect. Now in Galatians 2 and 20, the Apostle Paul said, For I'm crucified with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I'm crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As you notice the words here of these verses, this is Paul the Apostle writing this, but I find inspiration. And he says, I'm crucified with Christ. Well, the record of Paul's death isn't given to us in the Bible. According to historians, the Apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome. But in some way, Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. Christ, we know, experienced crucifixion on the cross. Some way, Paul says, I was crucified with him. The expression with him is used a number of times concerning those whom Christ represented on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, it was a death of representation. That's an important part of Bible doctrine that many people are never exposed to. Many people never even think about. But the Lord Jesus Christ's death was what we call a vicarious death. That means he died in the room instead of someone else. He died as their representative. So Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So he's dead and alive at the same time. The Lord's people are like that. It's a paradox. The natural man will never understand the paradox of the spiritual man. That's why the Lord would say such things as, you know, he that liveth uh, shall die, or he that dieth shall live. Uh, we live and die at the same time. So Paul was alive and Paul was dead at the same time he was crucified with Christ. 
He said, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ, what? Liveth in, in me. Every time a person is born of the Spirit of God, Christ takes up his dwelling within the heart and soul of that individual. A new nature is placed within a divine nature. He now has become a new creature. So he said, I am crucified with Christ. We go to Romans chapter 8. Excuse me, Romans chapter 6. And look at verse 6. And here we find the apostle Paul said, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Again, we see the word crucified. Knowing this, this is something we know. Knowing this, that our old man, when we talk about the old man in the Bible, we're not talking about somebody above 70 years old. We're talking about somebody whose nature is referred to in the Bible as the old man. Our human nature is referred to numerous times as the old man. Our new nature is referred to as the new man. When you're born of the Spirit of God, you're both the old man and the new man. You're both dead and you're also alive. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Again, we're looking at representation. In some manner, in some way, Christ did something for us we could not do for ourselves but yet, it's just exactly as if we had done it ourselves. He's our true, perfect representative. We were crucified with him. We died with Christ on the cross. All whom Christ represented in him were crucified with him on Calvary. Then we look in Romans chapter 6, two verses early in verse 4. He says, being buried with him by baptism into his death. We shall... As the Father of glory raised up Christ from the dead, so shall we arise to walk in newness of life. Being buried with him, we are crucified with him, and we weren't buried with him. When they took Christ off that cross and put him in Joseph's new tomb, he was buried, and we were buried with him. All right, we were crucified with him. We were buried with him. I'm talking about the legal aspects right now of our salvation. God is a just God. God demands justice. If justice is not met, then God's not satisfied. And so I'm going to tell you this morning, justice was met in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the justifier. He's the one who makes unjust people just. 1 Peter 3.18, it says that he, being the just, died for the unjust. We were the unjust, Christ the just, and Christ died in our place. So we go back to the book of Romans there in chapter 6 and verse 4. And he says, being buried with him by baptism into death. And that like as God raised up his son from the dead, even so we should rise to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism is. It's showing that we desire to have a break from the old and now enter into the new. There's been some changes in our hearts, some changes in our souls that we have reflected in our profession of faith to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Then we look over in Colossians 3.1. And Paul says, If you therefore be risen with Christ. The word if here simply means uh, that which is, is established, really. If you be therefore risen with Christ, if indeed you have, and you have, if you therefore be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now we notice so far that we were crucified with him, we were buried with him, and now we've been resurrected with him. When Christ came out of the grave, 
He represented you and I. He represented his family. It's just as if we were crucified, we were buried, and we were resurrected. Something we couldn't do by ourselves, something we couldn't do at all, and yet Christ has taken our place. He was crucified for us, he was buried for us, and he was risen for us. Come over to the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. And the apostle says in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespassing sins, parentheses, hath quickened us together with him. For by grace are you saved. Now he says we were quickened together. The word quickened means to make alive. We were quickened together with him. So we were crucified with him, buried with him, rose with him, quickened together with him. And then we were exalted with him, because he goes on to say, and hath made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Now let's go back to chapter 1 and look at verses 19 and 20. And Paul says, What is exceeding great is his power toward us, uh, to us who believe, who believe according to the power that worketh in us, which God well, worked in Christ or wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places. When Christ arose from the dead, he spent 40 days on this earth, and then he ascended into heaven, and he sat down on the right hand of the Father. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 5, that he hath made us set together in heavenly places. By representation and identification, he represented us, and we're identified with him in his crucifixion, identified with him in his burial, identified with him in his resurrection, identified with him in his uh, uh, ascension, identified with him in his exaltation, identified with him from the standpoint of being, uh, being seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. I want you to understand me here. The apostle Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Again, you're dead and alive at the same time. There's a story about these two women that were sisters in the flesh, and they enjoyed dancing and going to wild parties. But the Lord dealt with them. They had an experience of grace. And the things they once enjoyed now became dead to them. And the things they had no interest in prior to that became alive to them. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So this had been their prior experience. They got an invitation from somebody to come to this party. They sent an RSVP back and said, with all due respect, we must decline because we both died recently. We both died recently. They were dead and they were alive. But the things they were alive to in the past, they've become dead to. That's a, that's a wonderful experience of grace. That's an evidence that you're God's child, heaven bought and heaven bound. When things begin to change in your life, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions. Um, old things have passed away again. All th things become new. Now, legally speaking, the elect family of God, when Christ died for them on Calvary, all of them were represented in him. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The hymn writer saint wrote that, right? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Well, I was not physically and you were not either. But yet we were there when they crucified our Lord. If you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, all whom the Father 
gave to the Son were in Jesus Christ. They were there. They were there when they crucified the Lord. They were there when they took him off the cross and buried the Lord. They were there when the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected. They were there when he was exalted. They were there when he went into heaven and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. By representation, the legal aspects of the salvation of God's elect were taken care of there. Now, you have terms like reconciliation, redemption, and justification used in the Bible. We look in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, and Paul said, Therefore, being justified by his blood. Justified here is with an ED that shows a completed action. The Lord's people now, through, through the Lord Jesus Christ, as God the Father sees his people through his Son, they are now justified. They are now innocent of all charges, as if they had never committed a sin. That's just almost too good to be true, but I can tell you it's true. It's what grace is all about, how unjust people can become just in the sight of God. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. We were redeemed on the cross. We were reconciled on the cross. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, For he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This verse here simply teaches that when Christ died on the cross, those whom he represented, their sins were transferred to him and his righteousness was transferred to them. That's called the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think with me just for a moment here this morning concerning that principle. I want to go to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the richest chapters in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, yet it gives us information as if it was being written in the New Testament. But right in the middle of this chapter, in verses 5 and 6, he says, Christ was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Look at that again. He was bruised. Why? For our transgressions. Our transgressions is why he was bruised. He didn't have any transgressions. All right, and then the chastisement, our peace was upon him. He deserved no chastisement. He was wounded for what? Our iniquities. He had no iniquity. But he's bruised. He's wounded. He's chastised. He has stripes put upon him by his stripes we are healed. And then the next verse said, for it pleased the Lord to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. Now iniquity is another way of saying sin, but it's, a, it's sin in its greatest depths. That's what iniquity is. Sin in its greatest depths. Okay? He said he laid upon him. Now think about it. The Lord Jesus Christ is on the cross and God the Father lays upon him the iniquity of us all. Not just the iniquity of Brother Lawrence or the iniquity of one of you or the iniquity of all here in this assembly, but he laid the iniquity of all the elect family of God upon the Lord Jesus Christ at one time. It's, it's impossible for me to comprehend to the slightest degree how the Lord was able to do that, but he did. 
the Lord was perfect, the Lord was righteous, the Lord was sinless, the Lord was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. And yet he takes all the iniquity, all of our iniquity. Now, I, you know, if he just took a few of my sins, that'd be pretty heavy. But he didn't just take a few of them, thank God, he took them all. And took all the sins of all the children of God, all the elect family of God that he foreknew before time ever began, that he came and represented on Calvary. He took our iniquities and laid them upon his son. And his son bore them in his death. Legally speaking, that's where salvation took place. That's where salvation took place. Somebody asked uh, a sister one time, he says, uh, I was saved so-and-so when you were saved. She said, I was saved 2,000 years ago. And the other lady didn't really know what to say about that. That's because they didn't understand the legal aspects of salvation. That's when all the elect were saved, legally speaking. When they all were justified, when they all were redeemed, when they were all reconciled, it took place 2,000 years ago on a cross when the Son of God, hanging suspended between heaven and earth, made an offering to the Father. As God the Father, excuse me, as God the Son, he represented, you know, the people as God, represented God as God the man, the, the son of man. He represented man on that cross there. A perfect rec representation and the iniquities of us was laid upon him, but the rights of the Lord Jesus Christ was transferred over here to us. That's where salvation took place. It wasn't the work of Christ plus anything. And that's what we preach. Salvation by grace means the work of Christ has, uh, there's nothing can be added to the work of Christ and nothing can be taken away from it. We believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ redeemed, justified, and reconciled the entire family of God. From a legal point of view, that's where salvation took place. When the angel spoke to Joseph, he said to Joseph, Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife. For that was the conceit of hers of the Holy Ghost. She shall conceive, she bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. When Jesus hung upon that cross, made an offering to the Father, he saved his people from their sins. Legally speaking, the salvation had been secured and salvation was complete. Now what about vitally? Somewhere between conception and death, all the elect that were representing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be born of the Spirit of God. It's, the wording for this, uh, we have several different words in the New Testament to explain this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses and in sin. The word quicken here means to make alive. And you hath he, that is God, hath quickened. I mean, you may be made alive from, from death. You, when Adam transgressed God's law, he just didn't put all mankind into the infirmary. He didn't just put all mankind in the ICU. He put all mankind in the cemetery. Romans 5, 12, Wherefore by one man sin in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Now that's the condition of all mankind. Now how are we going to get from a state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ? How's that going to take place? When you're in this state of sin over here, state of death in sin, you have no interest in God, you have no feelings for God, you have no desire to read the word of God, talk about God, hear the gospel preached, go to the house of God, or enter any kind of conversation about God. Your nature is one that's described in the Bible as being a depraved nature. 
How are you going to get from a state of sin, death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I just told you in Ephesians 2, 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now let's take a look at John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath eternal life or everlasting life. Now notice, he didn't say you must hear, you must believe. He's telling you when you find somebody with a hearing ear and a believing heart, that means they have everlasting life. Or they wouldn't have the hearing ear or the understanding heart. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath, H-A-T-H, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. You're passed from death to life. And you shall not come into condemnation. Then the very next verse, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Who's going to hear the voice of the Son of God? Somebody described as dead. The hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Not the voice of the preacher. Not the voice of any man, but the voice of the Son of God. Not the words of the Son of God. The voice of the Son of God. Now I'm talking about the vital aspect of your salvation takes place when you're born of the Spirit of God. When you're quick and made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear the voice of the Son of God. Now when the Apostle Paul wrote this over here in Galatians 2.20, he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. It almost sounds like Paul is saying he's the only one Christ died for, isn't it? I love to preach to the Lord's people about all the elect of God being redeemed by the blood of Christ. But it gets real interesting when I get me involved. <laughs> It is real interesting, and I feel it personally. You see, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's feeling it personally. The life I now live, not the life I once lived. What was the life he once lived? Go read Acts 8.3. says he was a blasphemer. He was injurious. He uh, breathed out threatenings and slaughterings. He persecuted the Lord's church. Read the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Read 1 Timothy chapter 1 about verses 12 and 13. And you find the Apostle Paul is described in this manner as a persecutor, a blasphemer, injurious to the church. He breathed out threatenings and slaughterings. He gave consent to the death of Stephen and other saints of God. And he hailed them, H-A-L-I-N-G, hailing them. That means he drugged them and put them into prison. Does that sound like a man born of the Spirit of God? No, it doesn't, does it? But let's take a look at Paul's life in the beginning here in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, it opens up by telling that Paul's on his way to the city called Damascus. And he's got letters of authority with him. And those letters of authority are going to give him the power and the authority to arrest people just like you. To arrest the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to take them back well over 100 miles and put them in prison over here in Jerusalem. But just before he gets to Damascus, he's struck down from heaven right to the dust of the earth. At noontime, the brightness of the sun was shining. 
But the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus at the time, is struck down to the very dust of the earth. And the Lord speaks to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He said, Lord, who art thou? I believe right here and there, Saul of Tarsus was born of the Spirit of God. God spoke to him. He heard the voice of the Son of God. He'd heard the voice of Stephen. Didn't make any difference. He heard the voice of Stephen. He consented Stephen's death. But some got a hold of him in Acts chapter 9 when he heard the voice of the Son of God. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, Saul persecuted the Lord by persecuting the Lord's church, by persecuting the Lord's people. But the Lord said, when you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. Always remember this. When you talk to a child of God, when you speak to one of God's children, it's just like you're speaking to Jesus. So you need to ask yourself, would I speak to Jesus the way I just spoke to that brother? Would I speak to Jesus the way I just spoke to that sister? Would I do to Jesus what I just did to that brother or to that sister? Because that's what Jesus is telling Saul right here. He says, when you persecute my people, you persecute the church, you persecuting me. He says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And see, now Saul responds by saying, Lord, who art thou? He then tells Saul to go to the city of Damascus. When he gets to the city of Damascus, he's going to meet, meet a man by the name of Ananias. He said, he'll tell you what thou ought to do. Now I'm looking at Saul's experience here. Saul said in Galatians 2, 20 and 21, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. That's where faith comes from, from the Son of God. The life I now live, not the life I once lived. Go back and look at Paul's life when he was Saul. That's not the life he's talking about. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love how personal this is. That's why I love the 23rd Psalm so much. It's so personal. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff doth comfort me. Notice all these personal pronouns. Doth comfort me. It says, Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Go and just count up the personal pronouns in those six verses in Psalms 23. That psalm is extremely personal, is it not? And so I like it when it gets real personal, don't you? When you're sitting in the pew and the gospel is being preached, and it seems like Brother Lawrence is hurling arrows <laughs> from the pulpit and finding this, find this mark. Uh, you ought to be thankful for that. That means you got a heart to receive them. And, uh, but anyway, when it gets real personal, um, I remember uh, taking this preacher friend of mine years and years ago down to a radio station to do a, a radio broadcast for me. And my brother and I were in there, and just him, and he preached a wonderful discourse, had great liberty in preaching, and when we got through, we found out it didn't record. And I said, well, I tell you this, it sure blessed me. <laughs> Nobody else is going to hear that one, but my brother and I heard it, and we were really blessed. It was, I, I had it personal right there, you know. Uh, when you're in the pew, never take the attitude that, well, I'm glad brother so-and-so's here today because they really need to hear that. 
or say, well, you know, every time Brother Larch preaches on something, this sister needs to hear, she's not here. Uh, don't ever take that attitude. Take the attitude, Lord, I'm thankful I'm here. I'm thankful I was here this day to hear that message. It was meant for me. Uh, I needed that. I, I enjoy hearing people come by and tell me, I, I just needed that today. Uh, you've been reading my mail. You just uh, know, know what I've been going through. Well, I haven't been reading your mail, but God has. He knows what's going on in your life, you see. And that's, that's real personal, isn't it? But anyway, he said, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When it comes to this vital aspect of salvation, sometime between your conception and your death, or the conception and death of every child of God, every elect child, every object of God's love that he again foreknew before time ever began and gave to the Son sometime in that lifespan. It might be 90 years. It might be nine years. It might be nine months. It might be nine weeks. It might be nine seconds. But that child cannot pass this scene of life till the Spirit of God quickens that heart and makes it alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to tell you this morning, that's shouting information right there. That's shouting information. Nobody's ever going to over, overcome the, the purpose of God in the salvation of his children. And that's when your heart is changed on the inside. Other words for this is circumcision. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, he says, for he's not a Jew which is one outwardly, that is, in the flesh, but he's a Jew which is one inwardly in the spirit whose praise is not of men, but of God. When you're born of the spirit of God, your heart on the inside is circumcised. Israel experienced outward circumcision, physical circumcision, but I'm talking about inward circumcision. I'm talking about a spiritual work that only God can do. And if you notice in all these examples, the person that's being dealt with is totally passive in the operation of God. He's never active. He's always passive. Take a look at Colossians 1, 12, and 13. He says, For God had translated us out of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now, when something is translated, what is being translated doesn't translate itself, does it? The Bible we have in English translated from the Hebrew and the Greek did the Hebrew and the Greek say one day, well, I want to be translated into English? No, but somebody took the Hebrew and the Greek and translated into the English language, you see. It was passive in the work. When you are quick and made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are passive in the work. It's God who does the quickening. Look in John 6 and 44. The Lord Jesus Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. Now, I mention this from time to time. I'm glad there's some exceptions in the Bible. And here's one of them. He says, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. And that's just simply meaning that you're drawn from that state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is being drawn is passive. Just like when Peter drew his sword, what did the sword have to do with being drawn out of the sheaf? Anything? Peter took hold to the sword and drew it out. The sword didn't draw its own self out. The sword didn't just hop out. When the apostle Peter and them drew the fishes to land, when God had blessed them to catch a, a multitude of fishes in those nets, the Bible says Peter drew the net of fishes to the shore. Did those fish draw themselves to the shore? They didn't draw themselves to the shore, did they? No, they didn't. They were passive in that. The apostle Peter drew them to shore. And that's the way it is in the work of the new birth. In the work that I refer to as the vital aspect of salvation, 
Jesus told Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming. He says, uh, that uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus made it plain that a person must be born again. That's the vital aspect of your salvation. That's when you are made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. You still got the old man, you still got the old nature, but now you're a new man, you're a new creature in Christ. You got a new nature, you got the divine nature of God, and there's where comes the conflict and the battles and the warfare within, and you find all that described to you in Romans chapter seven. If you were to go into a psychiatrist's office today, and the psychiatrist said, well, lay down there on the couch and tell me your problem, and you read her Romans chapter seven, her or him, they wouldn't know what to make of that. Go read it. Paul describing his experience. The battle between the flesh and the spirit, the warfare, the conflict. When I would do good, evil is present with me. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, etc., etc. He's describing what you know by your experience and know by my experience. How many times have you had the thought of something that was good and beneficial and profitable, but before it was all said and done, the devil didn't talk you out of doing it? You lost that particular battle. Maybe sometimes you win the battle. Sometimes you lose the battle, right? That's an evidence that you've been born in the Spirit of God. But the point is, when you're born in God's Spirit, that's the vital aspects of your salvation. Now, I want to take a look at something uh, that took place in Paul's life uh, that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 22. In Acts 22, you're going to find the Apostle Paul is referring to that experience on Damascus Road that I mentioned to you earlier that he had in Acts chapter 9. But he goes into a little more detail in Acts chapter 22, some things that we don't, don't find in Acts chapter 9. We find here in verse 14, he's talking to Ananias, Ananias talking to him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now you can take that out of its context, and you can make it mean when you're baptized, you have your sins washed away, and that's what saves you for heaven. Is that what he's saying here? We're talking about Paul now, Saul of Tarsus. He's already been born of the Spirit of God before Ananias tells him this. I go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. It says here that the Lord Jesus Christ concerning him who hath loved us and washed us, from, washed us from our sins in his own blood. Baptized Brother Don this morning. You want up there, but I can assure you we baptized him in water. We did not baptize him in blood. All right? We did not put some blood in the water. He was baptized in water. Revelation 1.5 says, Jesus Christ has washed us from our sins in his own blood. It took the blood of Christ to wash your sins away, legally speaking. Legally speaking. Titus 3 and 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy he hath washed us with regeneration. Notice what he says. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy he hath washed us with the washing of regeneration. And the renewing of the Holy Ghost. When you are born of the spirit of God you are washed inwardly. On the cross you were washed in the blood of the Lamb. When you're born of the Spirit of God, you're washed inwardly and you're cleansed. So what's he talking about here? 
He's talking about when a child of God who's had the experience of being born in the Spirit of God and he comes to an understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and submits to the ordinance of baptism and makes a profession of faith in his conscience, in his mind, experientially his sins are washed away. This experiential phase of salvation is what Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 3.20 when he compared uh, the ark in baptism. He says, um, when the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, he says, the light figure, even baptism, doth now save us. There's a salvation in baptism, but it's not legal. It's a salvation in baptism, but it's not vital. There's a salvation in baptism, it's experiential. And he tells us what it is. In parentheses, he says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Let me ask you something here this morning. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you believe in Him and Him alone, and His work and His work alone saved you from your sins, and one day you'll be delivered totally and completely, ultimately, out of this life, out of this world, to a place called heaven. You've been saved from a burning hell to a place in glory. And in this life here, the Lord has allowed you to understand some of those kind of things. Why in the world would you not want to have a good con uh, the answer of a good conscience toward God? Why would you not want to make a public profession of your faith and tell God's people that you love God? I'm not ashamed to tell anybody I love the Lord. Not ashamed at all. I love, I'm going to tell you right now, I love the Lord. I love the Lord because I believe he loved me. I want to thank God for loving me. As I said last Sunday in the communion, I want to thank God for loving me, for choosing me, for electing me, for predestinating me to be conformed to the image of his son. I want to thank God for letting me know that in my heart. And I want to thank God for letting me know this in his word right here that brings great peace and comfort to my heart and to my soul. And I want to make my profession of faith and I want to hold on fast to it. And so I'm going to encourage anybody who's not done that. How, how could you not want to have a good conscience, the answer of a good conscience and right up here toward God by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the experiential aspects of your salvation. When Jesus told the disciples, the apostles in Mark 16, 15, he told them to do this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There's a deliverance or a salvation when you believe and follow up with baptism. There's a deliverance right there. It's not your legal deliverance. It's not your vital deliverance. It's your experiential deliverance. By the looks of your faces, I'm sure you all all understood everything I just said. <laughs> I hope that you did. Because people will take these verses... That's like this last one. Ananias told Saul to go and wash away thy sins and saying that it's necessary to be baptized to go to heaven. You got to have your sins washed away. But Jesus, John said, Jesus, who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, there's where your sins was put away as far as the east is from the west. There's where your sins were put behind the back of God. That's legal. Vitally, that's when the, the application of that work is applied in your heart and then experientially is when you serve the Lord and obey the Lord and you're baptized in his name. You're baptized in the name of the Father. When I baptized Brother John Don this morning, I baptized him in the name of the Father that foreknew him and loved him and chose him and elected him and named him before the foundation of the world. 
I baptized him in the name of the Son who came here and loved him so much he died for him on Calvary and redeemed him and justified him and saved him from his sins. And I baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit. So sometime in his past history, the Holy Spirit came to him and changed his heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and delivered him from a state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you understand that, you'll have to come to one conclusion. Salvation is by the grace of God.